the name of the values that keep you alive do not let your vision of man be distorted by the ugly, the cowardly, the mindless, and those who have never achieved his title. Do not lose your knowledge that man's proper estate is an upright posture, an intransigent mind, and a step that travels on limited roads. Do not let your fire go out sparked by replacing the spark and hope the swamps of the approximate are not quite the not yet and not at all. The world you desired can be won. It exists. It is real. It is possible. It's yours. Welcome to the Crypto Economy Podcast. This is your your host, Enrique Sotomayor. Today we're going to be talking about quantum computing and the risk it poses on cryptocurrencies. Decentralized ledgers are secure and unbreakable until quantum computing emerges. The quantum supremacy race between China, U.S., and Europe is on, as quantum computers are coming faster than anticipated. Adam Colton, an evangelist for quantum-resistant ledger, is joining us today to discuss the quantum technology threat and, and security challenges for distributed ledgers and what it means for the cryptocurrency landscape. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about how you got involved in this quantum world? Yeah, well, um, originally I got involved in the cryptocurrency world, which is sort of what, what led me to this intersection of quantum computing and, uh, and blockchain and cryptocurrency technologies. Um, and basically, uh, about two years ago, my life was very different. I was in law huh. school. I was on my way to becoming, you know, a lawyer. Um, and yeah, and that was, that was, my, that was my career track. Um, I was at the end of my first year of law school. That's sort of when, you know, you take stock of things because law school is only three years. And basically, long story short, I realized that uh, while I enjoyed a lot of the, the things I was being taught, I did not have the passion that a lot of my stu- uh, fellow uh-huh. students had. And that, that was going to become a pretty big issue once I got out into the, into the professional world. Um, and so I stopped, I walked away from that, decided not to take on any more student debt for a degree I wasn't going to properly utilize. And then was sort of at a crossroads. What do I do with my life? You know, where do I go from here? Um, the thing I thought I was going to do for the next 30 years, I'm not going to be doing. Um, that's when a friend of mine that had been sort of, uh, buzzing around, uh, my ears with, you know, talking about all this magic internet money, um, really sort of sat me down and was like, Hey, Adam, you know, you really should take a look at this. It's, it's pretty groundbreaking technology. Um, and he was just talking about just blockchain in general, not any specific cryptocurrency or anything like that. Uh, you know, full disclosure, I have a liberal arts background. I have a degree in anthropology and a degree in American studies, which sort of explains my, my, my difficulty in finding a job out of college. Um, I, I feel that I've, I recently graduated from the School of Liberal Arts as well at UT. Yeah, and it's a wonderful way to grow your mind, and it's a wonderful way to gain perspective on the world. Um, it just is not the best way to uh, to get a job. And obviously, as you well know, as soon as you leave college, especially in the United States, uh, you know, four weeks later, the 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 the, the payments start ticking. Yep. And um, yeah. So, in any case, uh, I started in the cryptocurrency space as a trader initially. Okay. Um, you know, I, I got a Bittrex account, I got a Gemini account, a Coinbase account, and I started I started trading around. Um, eventually, uh, a friend, a different friend of mine who had been a presale participant in QRL's presale in April of 2017, uh, around May or June, said, "Hey, I got in on this project. It's going to hit exchanges soon. You should 
check it out. And, and there's a lot of upside to it. So I started trading it over the summer. Um, I ended up, you know, as everybody else did in uh, the summer of 2017, I, I went into the project Slack and I talked to some of the developers and um, eventually there was an opening in the project for a, a marketing manager, um, somebody to handle basically all the non-technical stuff uh, with, with, to do with the project. And um, I didn't put my, you know, didn't get, send them my resume, but what I did do is make a little uh, document of like, you know, questions they should probably ask the guy that they're, that they're going to end up hiring because the two project leaders who are very intelligent um, are not marketing professionals. They are, you know, developmentally uh, oriented and focused individuals that have a very, um, a very deep understanding of technical matters. This is just something they weren't familiar with. So I wrote them a little thing and then uh, basically the long and short turned into them sort of being like, hey, would you want to maybe do this yourself? You know, you have the background and you're in our Slack all day, so you know you're doing the day job. Um, and I was like, you're, you're right on both counts. Uh, I, I worked in marketing previously before before law school. Um, I'm 29 years old, so there was a, there was a, you know, a number of years in there um, between graduating from undergrad and, and starting law school. And I did a lot of marketing then, um, but I was marketing things that I wasn't terribly passionate mm -hmm. about. And so I was not great at my job. Um, and didn't think I had a future in, in the industry. Um, and so in August, I sort of came on in a uh, probationary capacity. And then in September, I went part-time. And then in December, I went full-time. Um, and so since then, the past six months, I've been full-time for, uh, for the quantum-resistant ledger. And, um, and yeah, that's kind of how I found myself uh, talking about the intersection of quantum computing and blockchain. It, it was a winding road. Uh, really sure how well, else one would get were you at all interested in quantum computing before uh you learned about qrl i mean in the same way that i think you know lasers and teleportation and right and seems like sci-fi doesn't really seem like cool. it's... <laughs> yeah i mean i had heard of quantum computers before um i knew that they were not like normal computers and i didn't know whether or not you know, like a lot of people I talked to, I didn't know whether it was even possible. I thought it was still mostly a theoretical um, construction. And, you know, after I read the white paper for QRL, I realized, no, no, they're actually making these, uh, excuse me, they're making these computers now. And granted, it's sort of in a similar situation as uh, traditional computing in the 1960s, namely, the computers take up a whole room, um, they break fairly easily, and they're um, not super useful right. yet. But you know, similar to traditional computing, I, I think that, you know, as the years go on, um, they're going to become quite useful and uh, quite necessary for many industries and will completely change many industries. Um, so yeah. is QRL attempting to, um, so say the day emerges where suddenly quantum computing is uh, accessible to a bunch of miners, um, is QRL going to like give this or sell this technology to other blockchains? Or are they trying to develop like proprietary uh, quantum resistant consensus algorithms that they only want to keep for themselves? So, yeah, we're definitely uh, we're definitely not keeping things for ourselves. Only we're an open source project um, from start to finish. Uh, you know, after release, before release, from the very first day of development, you can go on our GitHub right now, root around in our code base. Uh, you know, make pull requests if you like. Um, so definitely not, not trying to make a, a proprietary, um, scheme in that sense of okay. the word. 
Um, you know, obviously, we're the people that are, are making our blockchain. We think we know it and the code base better than anyone else, but, but it is an open source project. Um, secondly, we're not really addressing the, the, the quantum miner problem, if you want to call it that, as some do, um, for a number of reasons. One, uh, both for our chain and in the industry in general, we think that there is going to be a migration away from proof of work over the next few years for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, we're launching as proof of work. Uh, we were originally intending on launching as proof of stake back when the white paper was written, but um, we realized at a certain point that a uh, the, basically the main thing holding up um, our developmental progress from hitting sort of the, the uh, gates we wanted to was proof of stake. And so we decided to push it off until after launch, but we will be um, sort of getting right, right back on, on to working on proof of stake once we've launched our network. Um, so yeah, the quantum miner problem is not, is not the thing that we address. What we address is, in my opinion, a much more fundamental issue uh, to the security of blockchain networks, which is the signature scheme, your uh, public key, private key right. pair. Quantum computers pose a very direct and material uh, threat to that, the, the, the security of that scheme. And um, that is what we most directly address when we talk about quantum resistance. Right. So in the traditional finance or banking paradigm, you're the most important person. So you lose your card, you lose your, forget your pin or whatever, you can go in and regain access to your account. But in the cryptocurrency world, you're not the most important thing, your private key is. And it's that key pair holding onto that private key that really allows you to authorize transactions. So the idea is that a quantum computing or quantum computing can come around and suddenly, uh, that key pair can be easily predicted or can be easily broken. Uh, so how is it? So what it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, and it's, yeah. So what it is, is it's factorization, right? So the public key, private key pair that you use in Bitcoin, Ethereum, any derivatives thereof, and um, certainly a number of other chains is what's known as ECDSA, right. stands for the elliptic distributed signature algorithm. Right. Um, and what that, so all security has assumptions, right? Um, you build a tall fence, you assume that people don't have ladders. Um, you build you know, a glass house, you assume people don't have stones. Um, with ECDSA, the assumption is that traditional computers cannot factor, uh, factor very large numbers in, in a human amount of time. Like technically it's possible, but it would take tens of thousands of years using the fastest computers on the planet. Um, so that's functional security and that's the assumption. Quantum, a sufficiently powerful quantum computer running Shor's algorithm would be able to factor a very, very large number in an actionable amount of time. Now, whether that's a handful of hours or a handful of days or even a handful of weeks, that's still enough time to greatly disrupt these systems because these systems are predicated under an assumption of permanent security. Um, so that's the sort of rub with, with the decentralized system versus a centralized system. The centralized system you know, the bank can take your money. Um, I mean, granted, we have FDIC and these other things, but, you know, just to be sort of abstract, a banker can take your money um, because ultimately they're the one that's unlocking the safe for you when you go to withdraw your funds. Um, The situation we have with blockchain, any blockchain, is much more like a mailbox. There's a slot in the front and there's a key in the back, except there's no master key. There's just the key that you have. And so if you lose that key, you're, you're totally right. If you lose that key, you're SOL, you're out of luck. Um, there's no way for you to get back into your, into your mailbox or in this case wallet. Um, and and that's, that's what makes quantum computing such a unique challenge for blockchain technologies. Unlike Gmail, 
for example, which I use for my personal email, um, you know, if Google wants to change their security apparatus on the back end, they don't need my consent. Right. They don't need my awareness, knowledge, or participation. I just log in the next day and suddenly everything's different, but I don't even know that because I can't see the back end that Google's working with. So do you think something like if, that uh, would also be true in the crypto world? If suddenly like this quantum resistant technology became uh, available to everyone, do you think that all these wallets and all, it would, they could just flip a switch and suddenly be quantum resistant and the user doesn't even have to know anything about quantum? Well, see, that's the problem, right? So there's no way to use, I mean, I'm not trying to target Bitcoin here, but just to use as a stand-in of a blockchain. Um, you know, I have a Bitcoin wallet. Uh, sure, quite possibly you do too. Nobody knows my private key except for me, I hope. Um, and if they wanted to change my address type, there's no way for anyone to move my Bitcoin funds out of my wallet without my, without my help, without my private key. So there's absolutely no way or a decentralized ledger or system or blockchain to universally migrate all of its wallets without some sort of participatory action on the part of the wallet owners. Okay. Um, and not only does that create a problem of, you know, millions of people that all have wallets all over the world, all needing to coordinate action, which is very, very difficult, if not functionally impossible, but also any lost keys, any lost um, wallets, any, you know, any of those examples of somebody mining a bunch of cryptocurrency on a hard drive and then forgetting it or formatting it and throwing it in a dump um, and the private key being permanently lost, none of those wallets can be migrated. So therefore they will all be vulnerable once uh, the signature scheme is, is cracked. Um, so it creates quite a thorny issue in the blockchain environment which luckily we don't have to deal with because we haven't launched our own mm. network. That's a really interesting so. issue. So, um, so cause it does seem like a re like reality quantum computers are being turned on this year. They're getting stable enough to actually be able to be used to perform calculations. So in the case that quantum computing becomes um, accessible enough uh, for it to be re realistically used to attack uh, cryptocurrencies, it seems like somebody's eventually going to have to, say like, hey, it's time to switch over and only the people who still have access to their private keys are going to be able to, to manage that switch. So that means there's going to be more scarcity for this for these tokens. Quite possibly. I mean, it, it really is a very thorny issue. And like I said, we don't particularly have the answer because we don't have that exact problem. Um, we're, we're sort of, we have the benefit of being able to, uh, to use a metaphor, we have the benefit of being able to waterproof our boat on land and not having to do it in the middle of uh, a... <laughs> I like that. Um, with a lot of these, a lot of these legacy blockchains don't have the the privilege of um, mostly just because when they were you know ten years ago when Bitcoin first started, uh, the question of quantum computing was a question of if like is it even possible? Right. Um, the only quantum computers that existed had only a handful of qubits, which is the um, the corollary to a bit uh, in, in normal computing is a qubit in quantum computing. Um, you know, there are only these systems of a, of a couple, two, three, four, five qubits, you know, rubbing together and they would break very quickly and they weren't useful for anything. Um, and people were wondering, is this technology even viable? Uh, so obviously nobody was thinking about how it might intersect with blockchain, which was also a technology that was just in its infancy. Um, but today, with the benefit of hindsight and a little bit more uh, acute foresight, we're able to recognize that these two technologies are, are headed for a path of intersection and are able to sort of like make these changes from the ground up, which is always easier than adding in changes later. Yep. So um, just to be 
to be sure I understand. So quantum computing really only poses a threat to crypto or, or to a blockchain if it's available only to one actor, right? If it's broadly available, then it's no different than any other uh any other like technology you have it, it would be analogous to the switch a couple of years ago from fpga to asic if everybody suddenly had access to quantum computing now everybody can compete with this or, or would it completely break it doesn't rely on only one person having access to this technology i think it's a mixture of the two if we're being honest okay. now that th this is a point of debate so i'm not going to speak as if you know i have the, the sole authority on this but you know it's kind of like um Firearms, to a certain extent, firearms are understood in, in certain cultural contexts to be the great equalizer. But the way they equalize is by giving everybody the ability to kill one another. They don't have a directly defensive application. They are, uh, in the context you know, of cryptography, quantum computing as we understand it, and as it will probably exist um, over the next few development cycles, is a penetrative or offensive technology. It's something that breaks cryptography. There is talks of people trying to use quantum computers once they're sufficiently powerful enough to create new types of cryptography. And I think that's very, very interesting, but that's that's not what, what, what we do at QRL. Um, what we do at QRL is trying to deal with the offensive or penetrative capability and, um, and, and sort of potential of quantum computers as it relates to blockchain technology. So if everybody had a quantum computer, everybody would be able to... Um, crack each other's blockchains, but nobody would necessarily be any closer to securing them. Um, so what we do is trying to protect the blockchain technology, well, our, our interpretation of blockchain technology and cryptocurrency from the inevitability of quantum computing. In the past five, 10 years, quantum computing has gone from a question of if to a question of when. Um, and we are sort of one of the many uh, technological responses to that shift in, um, in, in determination. Huh. Okay, so so then just clarifying, you said at QRL you guys are focusing on the signing algorithm, not the hashing algorithm, and that's what really what you want to focus on making quantum resistant? So, yeah, so what is the alternative to the elliptic curve? Uh, what is the quantum resistant? So there are a number, there are a number of... Um, quantum resistant or post quantum, depending on, on how you want to refer to it, uh, <laughs> types of cryptography that are in either development or that exist already in some form today. Um, we, you know, just to give a brief list, and this is not an exhaustive list, uh, there's lattice-based, multivariate, hash-based, which is what we use, uh, code-based. That Those are like the most common or popular, I guess you could say, uh, top four sort of types of alternative and uh, potentially quantum resistant or post-quantum cryptographic um, schemes. Um, however, they, they have wildly different uh, applications and technology. And we believe that hash-based uh, cryptography is most applicable to blockchains specifically. Um, that's why we use it. Um, and so that's sort of our, our answer uh, to what do you do in the face of um, you know, quantum computing when you're talking about a signature scheme. But what do you do instead of ECDSA? And our answer is you use hash-based cryptography. Okay. Um, specifically, uh, a combination of two sort of um, mathematical um, elements, one being uh, Winternet's one-time signatures, okay. um, and the other being the extended Merkle signature scheme, or XMSS. Uh, we didn't develop either of these two things. They're named after their creators. Um, 
they, you know, are mathematical um, algorithms and elements and, and theorems that have existed. Uh, I think the earliest one was written in the 1970s. Um, and they've been well vetted and, uh, and have applications, I would argue, and I think many would as well, outside of blockchain technology as well as inside. Um, so to the end so yeah, user, that, that, that's how we disrupt that. Uh, so you guys are just using a different algorithm to uh, produce like this signing mechanism. So to the end user, uh, would I see like would I still have a private key uh, in a post quantum world? Yes. So yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. Um, we're certainly not asking our users to take ten thousand private keys, write them all out on a piece of paper, and then and then cross them off with a sharpie each time they they, they sign into their wallet or something. That would be uh, that, that would be ripe for comedy, but not terribly useful. Um, no, you'll still have a, uh, a password, private key, a mnemonic phrase, as is um, increasingly becoming popular, to access your wallet. Um, in terms of, you know, UI or user experience UX, um, very similar to like a, I don't know, like a, a My Ether wallet or a My Crypto or something like that. Uh, you go on a website, you're prompted to enter in enter in your key, it unlocks your wallet, you have a list of tokens on the side um, that you can you can toggle on and off if you want to send those, or you can send the main currency, uh, in this case for our chain, obviously, QRL. Um, yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the beautiful things about technology, I've always thought, is that the technology can completely change, but the shape can remain the same. Like, uh, you know, I have a television, no big deal. But um, I have a television, and what's inside my television is completely dissimilar than what was inside my parents' television in the 1950s. You know, gone are the big tubes. Gone is the TV being a cube, you know, as deep as it is tall as it is wide. Right. Um, but it still does the same thing. I'm still pointing a remote at it. I'm hitting a button to turn it on. I'm pushing up and down to change the volume or channel. But the inside is completely different, but the user experience remains. And that's what we're, we're hoping to achieve with blockchain is you know, it's not as established an industry as television, but people understand more and more how to interact with their wallets. And we don't want to disrupt that. Um, what we want to do is make it more secure on the back end. Hey, Adam. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I thought I lost you there for a second. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's see. So what what have the last six months at QRL consisted of? What how has this like bull run affected actually being a part of a blockchain project? Uh, has it like slowed sort of slowed down momentum? I know here at Crypto Economy we, we all we have a lot more experience with startups than we have with cryptocurrencies in general, and we always say that the most important thing at a startup or, or the biggest threat at a startup is a momentum swing. For whatever reason, some like sentiment can change from yesterday to today. Now nobody wants to continue this work and nothing actually changed, but it's just a momentum swing. Um, would you, how would you describe the last six months of being a part of a big uh, like downturn? Well, it's been interesting. I mean, I can definitely say, you know, just joining this industry is very interesting in many ways because it, it creates time dilation in ways that I've never personally experienced before. Um, what I mean by that is that, you know, a lot of times people say a day in crypto feels like a week, right. a week feels like a month and a month feels like a year. Um, and, and six months, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's amazing what a short period of time that is for how differently uh, the world seems from the point of view of the cryptocurrency community. Um, you know, in, in the past six months, we've seen Bitcoin go from, from four figures to five figures, back down to four figures. Um, excuse me. And, you know, being something that's as forward looking as SQRL, as, as a project that's trying to deal with both quantum computing and where it intersects with um, blockchain technology, it's interesting when you go from everybody talking about the present in a positive manner during that, you know, mega bull run in the, uh, in the fall to everybody talking about the present in a very negative manner where, you know, people were declaring a week into January that we had started a multi-year bear market. Yep. Um, which to me seems as unlikely as people declaring in October that Bitcoin was going to hit $100,000 and not stop in between. <laughs> um, I mean, personally, I'm of the opinion that, and, and you know, it sort of sticks me in the middle you know, of most economic arguments, that anything, any direction, directional movement that isn't um, caused by some sort of singular external factor, like a worldwide ban on cryptocurrency or something, um, is going to retrace, you know, any upward movement is eventually going to pull back a little bit. Any downward movements eventually going to see a little bit of relief. Um, and I think that cryptocurrency right now is acting kind of like a, uh, a dryer when you don't separate your, your, your sheets, right. And it starts rocking from side to side <laughs> because all the sheets got bundled up and now we're kind of like a brick of wet clothes in the thing. It, it exaggerates all market movements. When things go up, they go up maybe more than they should right. and when things go down uh, you know quite possibly the same same thing um happens i mean cryptocurrency will change more in one week than the stock market will change percentage wise in a year right yeah i really like um, that analogy of the dryer i feel like this this whole economy is so young that we haven't clearly defined the sectors yet so we have all these different things in the same machine and they are really getting bundled up together and some of the downsides of one that might not necessarily apply to the other or just sort of being lumped together and pulling everything down yeah i mean while i sometimes think that some of the parallels drawn between blockchain and the internet are, are maybe a little bit of a stretch um i definitely think one of the things that's a great parallel is sort of the way the companies that operate in the space are viewed by like mainstream or outsiders however you want to put it you know, there was a time when people talked about investing in internet companies, sort of full stop. Um, today, yeah, exactly. Today, that would elicit a laugh because not only do internet companies compete with one another, um, but, you know, uh, an internet company like Amazon has a very different uh, place in, in, in the internet economy than another website that might also be quite pop profitable, but not, not deal in the same right. sector. Like Reddit um, or something. And similarly... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Amazon and Reddit don't really fight over that much uh, monetization on the internet, but are both wildly successful. Um, similarly, I mean, a lot of times, you know, you hear people list cryptocurrencies in order and then ask for like, which one would you choose? <laughs> um, and to me, they're, they're almost listing like all winners. Um, you know, they're oftentimes listing coins that have nothing to do with one another are not necessarily direct competitors or even sort of indirect uh, or tangential competitors. And it's just, they, they're all popular cryptocurrencies and therefore only one can survive. But I, I don't subscribe to that sort of Highlander mentality. I think that um, specialization is something that as the cryptocurrency economy continues to mature, is gonna continue to come into the space. 
and that projects are going to continue to differentiate themselves from one another and um, from other sort of tech startups in general. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what What is the future that you envision uh, for blockchain? Do you think that all these different projects are going to like focus on their own thing and eventually we're going to say like, hey, like we've we've figured out that these work really well as platforms. We've figured out these have really like uh, let the fraud in security. Now let's put them together. Are they going to sort of live in vacuums independent of each other? I mean, so I'm full disclosure. I'm an optimist. Okay. I think probably most people in this industry are since it's a forward looking piece of technology, but I'm, I'm inherently an optimist when it comes to these things. So I do think that things will, will continue to get better. Um, in that sense, and in that vein, I think that there's going to be more specialization, but I don't think it's going to be projects operating in a vacuum. I think that, you know, like a lot of technology, there are going to be meaningful intersections, some of which probably work out better than others. Um, where projects that do different but related things recognize that their users, that A, they may already share a user base, and B, if they don't share that user base literally, that they share a user base figuratively in terms of people trying to solve the same issues. Um, now, granted, this, this brings up some of the elephants in the room, like interoperability, the, the reasonableness of atomic mm -hmm. swaps, mm -hmm. and just how you get uh, industry to mature that by its very like ar architecture and technical foundation resists a lot of the specialization acquisition conglomeration that a lot of other industries go through. Um, you know, if you broadly look at the development of many different types of industries, technology and otherwise, oftentimes you see an initial starting uh, a group, you know, the pioneers, you then see um, that usually all try to do everything. Then you'll see specialization. Then you'll start seeing companies acquiring one another and then you'll start seeing large companies sort of merging together. That can't entirely happen in cryptocurrency in the same way, just because of. So yeah, after um, the initial sort of pioneers and, uh, and, and specialization stage, you tend to get some type of acquisition and conglomerization in, uh, in those industries. Uh, the architecture and structure of cryptocurrency sense that this is one of the main ways that like coins are not stock certificates um just sort of prevents a lot of that uh one cryptocurrency project cannot easily and effectively just acquire another cryptocurrency project obviously talent can move and talent will always be acquired um because that's just how a labor market works but you know in terms of when you hear about one car company buying another car company or something like that your sort of more typical type of acquisition um, blockchain and cryptocurrency as an industry doesn't really fit into that mold terribly well. Right. However, I will say that if there's a sort of a, 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 an industry today that's full of people that are ready to find answers to questions that don't really seem to have easy answers, it's blockchain. So I think that that will be solved. I just personally don't know how it's going to be done. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, as uh, these projects get more matured and some projects want to incorporate some of the aspects of other projects, a lot of these projects are open source. So uh, the need to acquire might not necessarily still be there. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you definitely uh, make a valid point there. And also, obviously, there's the in-between step of, well, we have the open source code base, so you can, we can use it, and then you can 
find out maybe a couple key people that helped develop that code base, try to hire them in a right. contractual capacity to help switch over things from one system to another. I, I'll admit we're kicking a little bit beyond my coverage um, as we're getting into some sort of like project development type talk. Um, but that, but yeah, I mean, the broad point I'd like to make is just that the cryptocurrency and blockchain industry is not just dealing with novel technology, but because of that technology's very structure and orientation, it's going to have to find unique solutions to a lot of common problems in business. Damn. Well, that's that's great. What are the next? What is the next milestone at QRL? What are you currently seeing in the short run? So in the near future, um, like this summer, for example, the, the major milestone that, that sort of dwarfs all the other ones is we're launching our own our own blockchain. We're launching our own network. Um, right now, we're in the middle of a security audit, and obviously, one cannot rush these things. Um, but the security audit has been going at a, at a very reasonable pace, and um, you know, upon its completion and another the completion of a few other internal milestones, um, you know, we're going to announce a date and then count down to that date and then launch on that date. Um, and obviously, that is the ultimate culmination of, you know, the, the inspiration moment where our founder, Peter Waterland, you know, sat down and wrote the, the white paper in November 2016. And from then to, to whenever we launched this summer is, you know, that, that, that's like stage one of the project in, in, in Totem. Stage two is once we have our own blockchain and can attempt to make it the best blockchain that it can be and try to build an open source community around it, try to court um, secondary layer application developers and, and sort of see what what this all ends up turning into. Um, but we're almost at the end of sort of that first major leg that you have to get through, which is just building the thing. I see. So initially when you guys, so you guys wrote a white paper, then you guys launched an ERC-20 token, then you guys raised some money, and then you guys are building your own blockchain? Is that correct? Close enough, right. Um, so originally Peter wrote the white paper, um, then an initial sort of very rough sketch code base was just put out. Uh, a pre-sale raise is done, so no ERC-20 was not my ICO, it was private pre-sale. I see. Um, money was raised. This is in April of, of last year. Um, by the summer, as we all remember, uh, ERC-20s were the hot new thing in the street. Right. They are providing excellent liquidity for a lot of projects, and some of the pre-sale investors, um, participants rather, um, you know, approached the project and said, hey, wouldn't it be nice if you guys had an ERC-20 for us to have intermittent liquidity during your development period? And uh, obviously, when you already know everybody's uh, eventual ultimate balance, because all the money's already in hand and you're not you know, selling tokens or anything like that, it was very easy to, to work up a smart contract, dispense the, uh, the ERC-20s, and then we were very fortunate to get listed on Bittrex back when that was not a Herculean feat. And, um, you know, after that, the rest is kind of the history, as you can see on CMC. Um, you know, once we got exposed to that large of a... Uh, market, things really kind of took on a life of their own, um, and it's really been amazing to see how the token has, has sort of gone on this trajectory of value, um, you know, the pre-sale, pre-sale price is $0.08 cents a token, uh, you know, I don't know what we're trading at now, but at the beginning of this podcast, we were trading at $0.80, cents, um, mm-hmm. and, and certainly there's been a lot of price movement in between those two points, so 
yeah, it, it wasn't the, I guess, stereotypical sort of thing. Like, write a white paper, hold an ICO, put out, you know, an ERC-20 with that ICO, and then sort of begin, begin development. It happened kind of more interspersed. Um, I see. So we, we've had a lot of questions uh, on our podcast, like trying to compare the new paradigm to like the, the more traditional venture capitalist model, where companies will raise money and then sort of use all this money to fund the development process. Um, how much of that carries over to this to the crypto world? Did, when these companies raise all, when, whatever their token is worth, suddenly like a market cap of whatever, $100 million, what does a company do in that position? Do they liquidate some of it or would that look bad and like like decrease the price or uh what is this sort of the game theory that's going on well i think you're seeing uh, a very diverse interpretation of that game theory right now i think you're seeing a lot of projects that are raising you know eye-popping amounts of money um but certainly our raise was was nice but you know the, the goal priced in dollars was, was about four million dollars and that's that's the number that that the project hit, um, which is a lot of money, but yeah. compared, you know, by, by the end of 2017, compared to many ICOs, it almost seems like a paltry sum. Um, and certainly, I think some projects, uh, they've sort of trapped themselves, right? They spend a lot of money on promotion, which helps them raise a lot of money, maybe even more money than they need. And then I think some projects feel the need to continue to stay in the news, to continue to be paid promotions and paid advertisements, um, because that's sort of what got them there. But, uh, you know, how many projects have gotten A-plus ratings on all the major ICO review sites, raise eight or nine figures, and then sort of have a paltry opening, maybe even a nice opening on the markets to fall by like a paltry performance, and then kind of fade away? Um, I think uh, a lot of projects are falling into a lot of the classic pitfalls of, of traditional um, fundraising, which is, you know, if you if you try to raise through traditional VC, you're going to get warned about raising too much money hmm. and also about raising too little. It's about, you know, getting trapped in a, in a, in a hype cycle and, and a lot of sort of things that have, that have become common wisdom in that, in that industry. Um, and in cryptocurrency... You know, people want to, to try new things. And they're not afraid of breaking some rules. And I think that is one of, if not the emotional strength of this industry. But occasionally, and I think some of the ways people are using their runway um, for development or other things can, can be pointed to, occasionally, in a desire to do things differently, you end up throwing out a little bit of useful common sense with, with maybe some of the common sense that, that's run its course. Um, and so I think you're definitely seeing a lot of the, the traditional pitfalls of fundraising um, starting to rear their ugly heads in this uh, industry. Hmm. I like it. So it's not really any different than the traditional industry. It's just sort of like that time dilution thing you were talking about earlier where there's no longer a barrier, so the problems we might have had in the more traditional system are now more exaggerated since there's not a barrier, anyone can do it. So the same mistakes people would make about raising too much, raising too little, well now they can raise from a global market, not any VCs they have to meet in person. So these people, some of them end up raising way too much and then that, now they have to keep up with the, with the hype cycle and they end up accelerating the FOMO and accelerating the fear in the market. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a very good way to put it. Um, I might add to that just that there's there are certain differences that make it very different than traditional fundraising. I think the fact that you're raising from a large, often 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a situation where there is a custodial element and there's a fiduciary responsibility element to traditional finance that both literally and at times figuratively has not translated very well to elements of the cryptocurrency industry. And we unfortunately see that, you know, in like a lot of these scan points that are trying to just raise a bunch of money in the middle of the night and sort of disappear. Um, it happens in traditional finance where, where a VC firm gets fleeced and you know gets a get, gets basically conned. But I think we can both agree that that is a fairly rare occurrence. Rare enough to be newsworthy, in fact. Right. Um, whereas, sadly, every single scam in the cryptocurrency industry could not make the news, but that would be all the news is. <laughs> um, yeah, there's enough barriers. I mean, granted, it's getting better. Right, there's enough barriers to entry into the in the traditional market. You have to be an accredited investor. All these things that require you to do your due diligence, and then somebody suddenly presents to you an opportunity that has no barriers to entry. And then what are people going to do? They're just going to throw money into it. They're not going to try to do their homework. If they wanted to do their homework, they would do their homework in the old traditional system. But uh, I think the conditions are ripe for people to get scams because people have so much. So they're actually so optimistic about this. They're so un- they have no idea where this is gonna go, but they just hear CNBC talking about it every day. They're like, "Yeah, here, take my money." And yeah, I, mean, I think there's an element of that, but there's also the element of like people are getting quadruple-digit percentage returns or quintuple-digit percentage returns, um, and there is this amazing potential for growth. Um, you know, like the credit investor thing you brought up, I think that's one of the things that's the best about um, the ICO model is that, you know, America prides itself on being a freedom-loving capitalist society, and part of the, the cost of that that we sort of socially accept, though I guess it is a greater um, point of debate these days, is we don't have a very robust social safety net. Um, and that's... I guess that, 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 that's a matter of political debate that I don't really want to get into, but the fact of the matter is we don't have a robust social safety net. We do expect people to largely pay for their own retirements, mm-hmm. and then we turn around and say, unless you're an accredited investor and have you know, a million in assets and 250k a year, or two million improvable assets, and whatever you know, k per year you want, um, that you are not responsible enough to invest your money to afford pay for your own retirement. Um, <laughs> to me, cryptocurrency is sort of addressing that inherent incongruity because something's got to give. Either we need to support people more or we need to enable them more. But right now, we're putting the American people in a bind, uh, which is one of the reasons I think you know America represents the largest and most active you know, group of investors in the world. It's partially because you have people that are, that are expected to sort of finance themselves but then are oftentimes prevented from doing so. I really like that. So, so uh, how decentralized is uh, QRL? It, do you go into an office to work, or is it is it just log in from the computer? And do you like actually know some of the people in person? So I have I've had the privilege of meeting the most number of QRL um, employees of anybody in the project, just because I travel around the conferences um, more than anyone else. I haven't met everybody. Um, hopefully, I will have met almost everybody by the end of this year. Um, but yeah, there is no office. Um, 
there's no central location. Uh, you know, I, I wake up in my apartment and that's where, where I go to work all day. Um, and, you know, I think that once again, that's sort of an acceleration and an exaggeration of what the trend is in many industries. I mean, communal workspaces, companies like WeWork, temporary office space, uh, digital um, meeting applications, um, you know, like Zoom and GoToMeeting and all that. These are very popular and they're, and they're growing in utility and, and popularity every year. And I think that, you know, what you find in well, cryptocurrency oftentimes where people don't have an office and they work from home um, or at least work remotely, whether they choose to work from home or not, uh, I think it's just sort of a little window into the future. Um, you know, our founders are English, British. Um, our developers are, you know, in, in, in Europe as well as India, as well as Australia. Um, I don't even know where we'd put an office if we were to, if we were to pursue one. Uh, but certainly, I, I, I really do think it is a benefit because when we look to hire somebody, you know, there needs to be a language facility, there needs to be certain logistical things that if you live in an uncommon time zone, you need to be willing to hop on a Skype call every once in a while, maybe in the middle of the night. But by and large, we're able to target the most talented people in the world for what we need. Um, and opening up the talent pool to almost, pretty much almost all of humanity, um, that's pretty powerful. And I think as that continues to happen in more and more industries, you know, you're going to see a greater and greater um, concentration of talent uh, because you're able to actually you know, find humanity's best. Hmm, that's interesting. So I, I, I think this actually relates to the time dilution uh, phenomena you were describing earlier. So all like the gravity of this cryptocurrency world, all the talent is getting sucked in here. And um, as it's gained more and more gravity, the, the, the effects on like the perception of time and how certain things are lining up. I think this is incredible. This I just graduated from college a couple weeks ago. And this is the field that like is growing the fastest in terms of recruiting, in terms of like the university trying to open up courses for this because they feel so behind because um, they can't keep up with it. So I, I don't know. I think I think cryptocurrencies uh, that are or not cryptocurrencies. I mean, blockchain projects that are doing sort of what you guys are doing and deciding, you know, we're not going to focus on the immediate short run. We're instead going to look forward to this big picture problem that we see out here, this like quantum resistant ledger. Um, I think those are the ones that are probably going to survive, but but they're also not going to be the ones that, you know, necessarily are talked about in the news because they're not as sexy or whatever as, like, these things that are promised to, to just give you profit tomorrow. Yeah, and I mean, not to bash the media too much, although it is quite popular in America these days, <laughs> but, you know, there's a barrier to entry in, in knowing what a blockchain is for a lot of people still. And then when you add, just using our case, for example, when you add on to that quantum computing, I understand why some news outlets, if they can talk about a coin that says it's going to double your money in 60 days, or if they can talk about a coin that's talking about sort of things like encryption and quantum computing and the future and blockchain and all these words that maybe some of their readers aren't yet familiar with, why they would rather talk about the newest, best thing in the plant on the world that turns out to be, you know, the newest Ponzi scheme or whatever. It's, it, it fits into a lot of narratives that people are more familiar with. And I think that that, first of all, I think that that's fine. It even may be a good thing. I mean, I agree. 
sometimes it's good to jump in the deep end of the pool, and sometimes it's good to walk down those little steps. And, uh, you know, I think people that are that are trying to jump in the deep end of the pool at this point with cryptocurrency, there's more than enough on the internet to, to facilitate that. Um, and what we are trying to do as an industry now, in my opinion, what we should be trying to do, not sure if everybody is, is trying to get those people that are still wearing the floaties and kind of looking at the water mirrors to, like, at least dip a toe in. You know, just get your ankles wet and see what happens. Um, and I think that these stories that talk about cryptocurrency using narratives and words and language that people are more familiar with are a great introductory step in that direction. Yeah, I agree. Uh, people want to hear a story, and you're sort of at the intersection of three kind of really complicated fields. You're at the intersection of technology, of finance, and of physics. So uh, <laughs> it's, it'd be very hard to form a story out of that. Uh, that the average Joe can sort of analogize to or relate to. So how, how can people get involved yeah, with QRL? Um, you, you mentioned that the GitHub is open source, and if people want to learn more, what would you recommend? Yeah, if people want to learn more, I would say go to our website, uh, thequrl.org. Um, there you have links to all of our social media. Our social media hub is Discord, our Discord server. We also have a, a Twitter account that posts updates and a Medium blog that fleshes out uh, those updates and provides sort of more um, nuance uh, to what's going on. Um, our Discord community is, is really quite nice, I think, um, compared to a lot of uh, cryptocurrency communities. We really try to create an informative um, environment that's not just people singing our praises, but, you know, a place where people can feel comfortable talking about, I want to build X or Y on your platform, or here's a support issue, can I get some help, or here's just a question I have about, you know, encryptions and, and what you guys are using and, and all that. Um, so, yeah, it's a go to our website. Uh, all the information is there. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, You'll see us in the news more moving forward as there's a growing awareness around not only blockchain, but um, the quantum computing as well, and sort of where those two things meaningfully intersect. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to include all these links uh, in the podcast description. Thank you so much for coming on today, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.